Freedom Hut. Biden taps Kamala as VP. Second round of looting in Chicago. Portland is saying they're not going to prosecute a lot of riot crimes. General Flynn still stuck in court and a horrific murder the media is not telling you about. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One call Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you for being here. I know there was that big announcement last night. Turns out I was right. I told you Kamala was going to be the VP. None of this Susan Rice stuff that I was hearing. I knew it was going to be Kamala. And now we have uh, at least at least a few news cycles where we're going to hear about how from the liberal media, this is an inspired choice and this is moving America in historic and amazing new directions and all this stuff. And they want you to forget a couple of basic truths here. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, in a sense, are perfect for each other as president and vice president on a ticket because Biden is the Democrat at the top of the ticket who has been repeatedly and clearly denied by his own side. Right? He ran in 88. He ran in 2007. He has been running for president for decades. He didn't run in in 2016 cycle because Hillary was just more compelling to Democrats. No one really thinks that this guy is a great candidate. And I'm talking about Democrats. But he's their panic move. He's the best they've got. So they're going to pretend that we don't know what they really think of him. Same thing with Kamala Harris. She was the favorite of the media, even more so than Beto O'Rourke. Makes me sad. He was the or she, she was the favorite of, of all of the national press corps. And she had to drop out because she ran out of funds before there was even one Democrat primary. Because people in the Democrat voting ranks didn't like her. Didn't like her. Nothing about her particularly compelling. She is that classic prosecutor who has been using the power of the office to advance herself and now transitioned into a political career. And I've always warned you about this. Uh, Highly ambitious prosecutors should be watched. They're not all bad. There are some very good ones. But highly ambitious prosecutors are a cause for concern. I want people working in prosecutorial ranks, generally speaking, who that's their lane, not who are thinking, how can I use this office to become popular enough to be a senator or a president although i know that's a it's a common it's a common track people become but you got to watch them you got to watch them you never never can really trust that the politics weren't somehow infused into prosecutorial decisions which should not be happening but kamala is uh not really going to change very much i think for where we are in this in this race i know people are claiming that that trump is now really running against kamala harris no trump is just running against the democrat party Biden, Kamala, doesn't matter. As I've been telling you, whether it's Biden or a sack of potatoes, it's not Trump. It's a Democrat. It's somebody that will do the Democrat establishment's bidding, and that's all that really matters. If we want to have a little fun with this, though, it is worth taking a trip down memory lane for what did Kamala Harris think of Joe Biden before she was given the opportunity to be at the bottom of his presidential ticket? What, what was she thinking about? Well, here's uh, 
Kamala Harris talking. And this this was her biggest moment. You remember this during the Democrat debates, her biggest moment that the media was all so excited about where she didn't call Joe Biden a racist, but she said, you know, you're kind of a racist. (laughs) Blake Lip, too. Um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it is personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. So you're not a racist, Joe Biden, because that's uh, that's an epithet that we only reserve for Republicans in politics in this country. But you're you're like a little bit you got a little bit of a racist vibe sometimes. You supported segregationists. You were opposed to busing. That was the biggest slam on Biden that anybody had during all the debates. Other than Biden looking kind of confused and yeah, I'm just going to be yelling here on the stage. I'm just sort of saying stuff real loud and. Kamala went after him. She also said that she believed uh, Joe Biden's sexual assault accusers. So when it suits her, Kamala Harris is happy to attach herself to and to be uh, advocating for a guy who she thinks may very well be guilty of sexual assault and is kind of a racist. But I mean, power is power. And we know Kamala likes power. We know she likes to uh, elevate herself and is willing to attach herself to powerful people to do so. Now, you also have uh, some of the downsides for Democrats, immediate downsides for them of having somebody who's been a career, not just a career prosecutor, but really built her reputation on locking people up for pretty minor stuff in the grand scheme of things. And, And now I understand there's a bit of a dissonance here. As Republicans, we want tough on crime policies. But Kamala wasn't tough on the kind of crimes that we wanted her to be tough on. She was just kind of making it up as she went along based on what was good for her, for her, uh, for her political aspirations at that moment. And you know who took her to task? And, you know, I, I, I had so many of you writing me during the primaries like, Buck, stop all your fan fanboy stuff over Tulsi. I'm not a Tulsi fanboy. She's she's a, a socialist, really. But I kind of like her. You know, look, I kind of, sometimes I can kind of like a, I wish they weren't socialists, but I can kind of like a socialist, you know, Aloha Tulsi. But she had the biggest moment of her debate season against Kamala Harris, specifically on how Kamala Harris was willing to really lock people. She was uh, she was the district attorney for San Francisco and then was the state attorney general and then became the senator, took over Barbara Boxer's seat and. When she was in the in the role of making decisions that affect disproportionately affect the incarceration of members of the black and brown community. She was all about locking people up, lock them up. And and that's interesting, given where the Democrats are now. But Tulsi Gabbard called her out. You remember during the debates, play one. 
I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Now, I'm going to tell you, I, I think that bail is important. And we've seen that in New York. So it's not that I agree necessarily with all of Tulsi's criticism of Kamala, although if you're a prosecutor and you know someone's innocent and you don't you don't march down to the jail yourself and let them out. I mean, if you if you allow someone that, you know, to be innocent, to to suffer in prison, um, you're a horrible human being. It's worse than even just you're bad at your job. You're a horrible human being. You're a disgrace. You're disgusting. So that's true. That's really all you need to know about Kamala Harris. Uh, the we'll get into the marijuana arrest situation in a moment, but the Democrat Party is the cops are bad. Let's let people loot and riot party now. But they're elevating somebody who's built a whole career. In fact, Joe Biden's proudest legislative moment was probably the Biden crime bill, which was a tough on crime bill, which sent people to prison for longer periods of time. Now he's repudiated that, but he's got Kamala Harris, who's also built a reputation for sending people to prison for longer periods of time, you know, for being more strict within the confines of the law. Oh, and also some horrific political targeting, which I'll get into in a moment. I haven't forgotten about that either. Uh, but the Democrats are just going to pretend that none of that matters. It doesn't, as I've said, it doesn't really, we could talk about the record, and we will, and talk about the policies, and of course, that's our obligation. But it's just generic Democrat against Donald Trump. It is the left-wing mob against Donald Trump and the Republican Party. That is this election in 2020 encapsulated. That's the whole thing. So the specifics, while they're interesting to us, I'm not sure they really move the needle that far one way or the other. Here is Kamala on a radio show talking about how, you know, she smoked weed in college and all kinds of stuff. Play clip three. So there are a lot of reasons why we need to leave a lot. Have you ever smoked? I have. Okay. And I and I inhale. I did it. I did inhale. It was a long time ago. But yes. I just broke news. I mean, was it college? Uh huh. See, I like stuff like that. That's a real honest deal. Was it a blunt or joint? It was a joint. Hey. Yeah. Remember the high? I do. So if it was legalized all throughout the country, <laughs> with this and all, would you, you know, do it? Listen, I think that it gives a lot of people joy, and we need more joy. <laughs> now, I'm I'm a I'm opposed to marijuana. I think it's bad. I think it's bad for you. I think it's harmful to society. Uh, but I'm not in favor of locking people up for for certainly for using it. Um, I'm not in favor of ruining people's lives for for uh, being in possession of marijuana or even selling small amounts of marijuana. But, you know, Kamala Harris was very strict when, it, when she was in a role where she got to determine how long people would go away and what, they'd get, how, what kind of charges they would face, what kind of deals they'd get. Prosecutors have tremendous power. 
I mean, in many ways, they are they, they have uh, the greatest authority over American citizens of any government official. The only thing that really comes close is the IRS, but even the IRS eventually has to rely on prosecutors to do their nastiest work. So the prosecutor's writ, the prosecutor's reach is something that we should all be very wary of. And Kamala Harris used it for partisan ends. Kamala Harris would laugh about marijuana in an interview when she wants people to like her, but was locking people up for marijuana when she was the district attorney in San Francisco in a way that was in excess of her predecessors. You could at least put it that way. But the most troubling thing that she did, I don't even know if, well, no, I can't say the most trouble. There's a lot of troubling things she's done, but I've, I've got a few of them for you. One, she was the uh, state attorney general who sent uh, about a, almost a dozen agents of, of the state of California, law enforcement officers, to go ransack the house of David DeLayden, uh, Delayden, who was the uh, guy behind the videos of the Planned Parenthood uh, selling of baby parts, which was a real video, which we all that was true. And we've just that has been erased from the media memory banks. Planned Parenthood was doing what the Center for Medical Progress was saying uh, that they were or Center, Center for Medical Ethics, whatever it was saying they were doing. All right. They have it all on tape. Kamala Harris went after them. They, she criminalized undercover journalism because Planned Parenthood is sacred to the Democrat Party and they will do any they will unleash the full fury of the state on you for the PR reasons of Planned Parenthood. Right. Just so you can't make Planned Parenthood look bad. She was willing to criminalize undercover journalism, say that it was violation of wiretapping laws. Oh, so you can't actually do any of these shows where the people go and they expose wrongdoing. Right. You've got journalists have been doing this for decades. Oh, that's illegal now in California. This is absurd. This is absurd. But she needed the money. She wanted the support and donations of Planned Parenthood and the Democrat Party. And so she used her power for that in a partisan fashion. It was unjust. It's disgusting. And she did it. But in some ways, the, the one that really sticks out even more for me, perhaps because it's more recent, Kamala Harris was the uh, in some ways the most aggressive and the most aggressively stupid too. A questioner of Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, the way she went after Brett Kavanaugh, she believed Julie Swetnick. She believed Julie Swetnick. Oh, and she also believed Jussie Smollett. Thought that that was uh, almost like a, a modern day lynching, she called it, or attempted lynching, something like that. I knew, and you who listen to the show know, that Jussie Smollett was lying pretty much from day one. I was like, this guy's not telling you, this is ridiculous. She believed him. Or at least she said she did. So what does that say about her judgment? She believed Julie Swetnick, who even the people I know who believed the initial accuser against Kavanaugh uh, understand that that's just the Swetnick allegations were absurd. That was insane. And it probably saved Kavanaugh's nomination. But she believed those insane allegations. And she also tried to entrap Kavanaugh with some. Did you ever have a conversation with a law firm thing about this under oath? I mean, she he was desperate to get her five minutes of, uh, of additional play on MSNBC by destroying Kavanaugh's life. Uh, so she's an unethical person. She is incredibly, uh, incredibly ambitious in a way where everything else is secondary. All other people, all other, all their interests. It's all about Kamala. And if I'm Joe Biden, I got to think uh, this is somebody who will push me aside and, you know, the moment Joe Biden, you know, hurts his hip, Kamala steps into the role. Guess what? 
It's going to be President Kamala, my friends, in all but name. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Ah, but what did the media say about this generally broadly anticipated announcement yesterday of, of Kamala Harris? Uh, and, and what did the Democrat Party say? Well, here's the media. Here's Joy Reid has her own show now at MSNBC still, uh, MSNBC. still hasn't found the hackers who broke into her website from 10 years ago to say homophobic things. I'm wondering when that's going to happen. But play clip 10. I'm proud of Joe Biden, I have to say, as a man of his generation, to be the anti-Trump today, to be the anti-Trump and to affirm black women in this way, on this day, with the president that's in there now, this could not be a better selection. He's taken us back to the start. She was always the most logical choice. He did a lot of searching. He did a lot of research, and he came right back to where he really should have always been. I think this is a great day for this country. A great day for the country. Of course. That's what the Libs would say about this. This is the only injection of enthusiasm that they've had in an otherwise very boring and almost non-existent political campaign by Joe Biden. And if you haven't already... You got to see the the cover of the New York Times that's been floating around from the the aftermath of the initial pick, where it's just it's it's like it's hagiography. I mean, this it's Kamala Harris, the the saint of American politics, front page, beautiful photograph, huge thing, and you see the comparison of it with when Mike Pence was announced by Trump. It was like uh, you know bottom right of the page. It looked like where they should have an ad for sleep apnea machines or something. Instead, there's vice president or Mike Pence tapped as vice president, blah, blah, blah. Nothing. I, look, I know media bias is so present that after a while you start to get tired even pointing it out. But but this was particularly this was particularly absurd. I mean, this this was truly outrageous. Um, we'll talk about all this and, mu- and much more coming up here in just a moment with the Attorney General of the United States. That's right. Bill Barr is joining us, my friends. You've heard me talk about him many times. I think he's absolutely critical, not just to the the rule of law in general in this country, but also to getting answers about specific violations of the rule of law and specific undermining of our institutions like the Russia collusion probe, the persecution of General Flynn, So we have uh, the Attorney General of the United States joining us here in just a moment. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. As promised, we are now joined by the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr. Mr. Attorney General, thank you so much for making some time for us. Sure, Buck. Glad to do it. So we've got a lot of major law enforcement issues going on all across the country. Uh, some are newer and some are more longstanding. Uh, I want you to address to the, to the degree you can what's going on right now with federal assistance to cities in places like Portland with federal law enforcement deployments. Portland doesn't seem to be able to control things. Chicago also has had another night of, of looting, which isn't getting a lot of media coverage. Is there more cooperation going on? What's the status of federal assistance to these cities? Well, but there, there's essentially two kinds of things going on. They're very uh, different in nature. One, one are, uh, is an increase in criminal activity, uh, the normal neighborhood crime, gang violence, things like that. 
And we've seen an upsurge in many cities of that after uh, the attacks on the police and the demonization of police. Uh, and so in a number of cities, we've been stepping up uh, and expanding our uh, federal task forces that work shoulder to shoulder with the state and local law enforcement in going after the gangs and, and the violent criminals. So in Chicago, it's criminal activity. And what happened in Chicago uh, is that some of the gangs organized a raid downtown for looting purposes, which is obviously just stealing. So that's the kind of thing that's going on in a number of cities. We, we, we have a program called uh, uh, Operation Legend, which is increasing our support uh, to those uh, cities that need the help, but also want the help and work closely with us, district attorneys and police chiefs and mayors who who are willing to work closely with us, and we're, we're having an impact. The kind of stuff that's going on in Portland uh, is different. That is, uh, you know, ideological in nature. These are far-left extremists who are violent and trying to use violence to achieve their purposes. Uh, which is to obviously create chaos uh, that will in turn affect the political system. So this is driven by groups such as Antifa, uh, and Portland is is sort of the uh, uh, the longest. Uh, uh, I mean, Antifa started there in the United States and and has long been very active in that area. Mr. Attorney General, um, have you or you were in this exact role before? Have you ever seen uh, the the unwillingness from some people in positions of authority? I mean, I, whether it's the the mayor of Portland, uh, different district attorneys, the unwillingness to work with federal law enforcement, and, and even it seems sometimes to turn a blind eye in the case of Portland to widespread criminal activity. No, it's it's uh, this is the first time I've seen this happen. Uh, on one level, we, I, this is the first time I've, I've seen leadership of a political party, in this case the Democratic Party, not willing to condemn violence. They're silent as to violence. They're silent as to the burning down of attempts to burn down federal courthouses. And then many of the local leaders are silent on the violence and are, and are trying to hide the violence, uh, suggesting that there is no violence going on, that these are peaceful demonstrators. Uh, and a number of them are refusing uh, to work cooperatively with the federal government. So, uh, you know, we have district attorneys in, in some jurisdictions that are not willing to do it. Now, by and large, still throughout the country, most most are working very closely with the sound law enforcement level, but in many places they're not. Um, and uh, Portland is, is a place where they're not. They're the mayor... Uh, uh, you know, has prohibited the police from cooperating and working with federal law enforcement. Mr. Attorney General, um, I also want to ask you about the Durham probe, because there's a tremendous amount of focus these days on, on the timeline here. When are we going to find out? I, I know there are going to be things that you, you can't say or or things that are not yet even known or, or perhaps handed in uh, to, to you about the Durham probe. But can you tell the people listening to this across the country right now that if you have if it is your belief that if Durham finds pure, clear criminal activity, that he'd be willing to indict or willing to request rather that there be an indictment, even if it means that there would be some political backlash. Uh, yeah, I, I've made clear that uh, what 
part of what he's doing is specifically uh, seeing if any criminal laws were violated, and if they are, people will be held accountable. And I've also said that, you know, we are going to proceed with this investigation and not put it on hold uh, right now uh, during the election season. Uh, and I, and uh, you know, we are we're all aware of the calendar, and you know, we're not going to do anything for the purposes of affecting an election. Uh, but, you know, we are trying to get some some things accomplished before the election. Is the Durham investigation in the latter stages? Uh, I'm not going to comment. I'm just going to, you know, th- there are some things we'd like to get accomplished before the election as soon as we can. Fair enough. I uh, also want to ask you about your opinion of the uh, ongoing prosecution of General Flynn. Uh, there, was the, there were the oral arguments earlier this week heard before the Court of Appeals on bank, all of them together, and this may keep going. You uh, were involved in this in this case because of the decision to stop bringing a prosecution against General Flynn. Two things. One, have you ever seen this happen before where a judge, in this case, Judge Sullivan, kind of continues a prosecution that the state or rather in this case, the federal government, the executive branch does not want to happen? And what is really going on here, Mr. Attorney General? Well, no, I haven't seen anything like it. I mean, up until now, it's been very clear, not just that decisions as to prosecution uh, are, are solely vested in the executive branch, namely the attorney general, but in the federal government, but but also that that there's absolute discretion as to whether or if a decision is made not to proceed with a case, that's really absolute discretion because there's no one else in a position to prosecute a case other than the executive. So... You know, this is a very unusual situation, and, and uh, the judges every you know has been very has made has been very outspoken about this case, and uh, obviously is uh, very invested in the case, and uh, uh, seems to want to keep it going. But you know, I think I've had uh, an in, another U.S. attorney take a look at this case, get into all the evidence, and. It's very clear that there, there's just a voluminous evidence that was never turned over to Flynn or Flynn's lawyers that uh, show that the FBI did not believe he was a Russian agent, did not believe that he had lied, uh, and that the basis for the interview was not linked to any bona fide investigative purpose that the FBI had. So given those factors... And the conduct of the FBI, I exercised uh, my discretion to say we were not going to proceed with this case. And I think at the end of the day, that decision will stand. Do you think that there, and we're speaking to the Attorney General of the United States, Bill Barr, um, sir, do you think that there is the, uh, that the mechanisms are in place needed to reform uh, the FBI, different aspects of the intelligence community? You and I both worked for the CIA at one point. Do you think that they're able to make sure that this what we saw with the Russia collusion? I mean, I would call it uh, a, a fantasy and, you know, an ambush. Or Trump has called it a witch hunt. The president. Are they able to police themselves on this matter going forward? Why should we believe that this won't happen again? What happened to President Trump? I do think there are going to have to be some changes and reforms uh, made. And I don't think the election season, you know, is the time to be doing that. So I'm, I'm keeping a, a careful uh, watch on uh, 
some of the things that I felt contributed to the abuses in the past. I know uh, the director of the FBI also has a number of ideas uh, as to checks and balances that can be put into the system. And uh, we talk about this. In fact, I talked about it with him this morning, some ideas for putting additional uh, safeguards in place. And I think once the political season is over, uh, you know, we'll move forward very aggressively to do what we can administratively within the executive branch uh, to, to put additional safeguards in place. I'm not sure that any statutory changes are necessary at this stage, but I think we can do a lot. Uh, with administrative changes. And before we let you go, is there any federal action that we might be able to expect on restoring some of the rights that seem to be in, in a permanent freeze situation because of, of COVID-19? At the, at the state level, there's a lot of arbitrary decision-making, a lot of extension of deadlines, and certainly some what seem to me to be partisan decisions about who has First Amendment rights for what and when. Is the federal government going to take any actions here, any future actions to make sure that people's constitutional rights are respected even during the COVID pandemic? Yeah, well, I've been you know, very active on this front, uh, basically uh, making the point that the Bill of Rights uh, doesn't take a holiday even, even during uh, a crisis like a COVID crisis and making sure that the rules that are put in place are reasonable, uh, non-discriminatory, and so forth. They don't discriminate against religion, for example, and uh, that any distinctions are reasonably based and narrowly tailored uh, to, to, to achieve the government's legitimate purpose without putting undue burden on people's rights. So the way we've done that is we have entered some litigation going forward uh, and have been successful in some places, but Actually, we've made most progress by writing letters to the governor suggesting we might bring litigation and pointing out why we have a problem with what they're doing. And in most cases, they've been changing their rules and, and, and following our advice. So we, we are, we still are doing that. Uh, and as the situation goes forward, as things continue to develop, as therapeutics become better, uh, as uh, the incidence is reduced and so forth, uh, you know, th there should be a corresponding change and loosening up of these restrictions. And if we see restrictions that are continuing that are not reasonably justified, we'll challenge them. Attorney General Bill Barr, sir, thank you so much for your work and for your time here. We appreciate it. Great to talk to you, Buck. Thank you. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Is the country going far left, given who we see on the Democrat presidential ticket right now? There are people who are going to argue, no, no, these are establishment figures. There will certainly be some Republicans out there who are going to say that the country is, in fact, going far left. Liz Cheney is one of them. Play clip five. Congresswoman, is it going to be the strategy of the Republican Party to focus their efforts and attacks on his new VP pick, who many see as a very strong choice for him and a strong voice uh, for his ticket? Or do you refocus those attacks back on Joe Biden himself? 
look, you know, the, the choice of a vice presidential running mate is the first decision, the first important decision a presidential candidate makes. Uh, I think that those decisions ought to be made based on who is the best candidate. Uh, Joe Biden clearly decided that he was going to make a choice based on somebody's gender, based on their race, uh, and based on his need to placate the very far socialist left of his party. And so I think this choice uh, says a huge amount about him. We're going to be focused on that. And we're also going to focus very much on her, uh, very much on what she stands for. And, and as I said, uh, the race is going to be for those independent voters. It's going to be for people in those swing states. And her policies are simply completely inconsistent with what uh, most Americans believe in and stand for. OK, so let's let's unpack that a little. Cause I know they're going to say that's Liz Cheney. She's right wing and she's a Republican. So, of course, she and, and it is true. Of course, she is going to criticize the V. She was going to criticize any of the VPs that Biden has because we disagree with Democrats. Right. Same thing with me. But if we look at whether or not it's fair to say that Kamala Harris is a particularly left wing candidate, I think it's more important to see both Biden and Harris as malleable. As people who can be pushed, who can be molded, who will do what the consensus of their party wants them to do. And the Democrat Party is now, it's increasingly obvious to me, a far left party. I think it's obvious to all of us, a far left party. Uh, They want Medicare for all, which is really just uh, socialist health care. Right. We know this. Even more socialism and health care than we currently have. They want a Green New Deal. Uh, They want abortion for all nine months of a pregnancy funded by taxpayer dollars and treated as a sacred constitutional right. They want open borders and amnesty. And when they say, oh, they don't want open borders. okay, they want people to have to check in before they come into America and get access to free as in taxpayer paid for health care and a whole range of other issues. So. It's a far left party, folks. We we really should just. Oh, and and. Being anti-law and order now, being anti-law and order, because you see, the Democrats need to establish we we often talk about narrative uh, in the current political discourse, which is troubling in itself in a lot of ways, because narrative is automatically the editorialized uh, storytelling and compilation of facts that serve a purpose. Right. Narrative is always has a an effective uh, has an effective propaganda. But one of the problems the Democrats have is that the they claim to be the party of minorities, particularly of urban minorities. Right. So people black, uh, black and Latino. Remember, other other racial minorities are not really talked about by the Democrat Party the same way. It's always black and Latino. And so if you're Arab or Indian or uh, Korean or Chinese, you know, you're you're not of descent, I should say, from any of those places or Korean American. You don't get the same treatment. The Democrat Party really because they need 90 percent of the black vote to go for Democrats to win the national election. So what you have is a problem. You have these Democrat enclaves. Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, um, Baltimore, right? Go down the list. You have these Democrat controlled uh, political entities, cities or states, but mostly the cities we're focused on now. Seattle, Portland, where. We hear from politicians constantly about how they're going to do more for the black community, how they're going to do more for the Latino community or Latinx, which is fascinating to me because the only people I ever hear use the term Latinx because they don't want to misgender anyone in the Latino community uh, with the Latino, which would be masculine of a version of the word. Uh, I only hear white liberals use the term Latinx. I never I've never I mean this. I've never heard a Latino person in my life say Latinx. 
So I think that's interesting. Once again, white liberals, you know, who, who is the, the worst political group in America? White liberals. The worst people in America in politics, white liberals. No question. But when you look at what's happened in these cities, white liberals constantly talk about how they want to uh, do more for the black and brown community and, and that they are doing more, that they're the party of. But there's really not a lot of improvement that they can point to. And in fact, there's continued decay and desperation and, and violence and economic uh, economic feelings of being left behind. And Democrats need a narrative to blame that on something else. So what do they do? Oh, it's it's racism and it's cops. So they absolve themselves. They absolve all Democrat leadership for it. And they also absolve the communities themselves from having to look inward and figure out what's really going on here that could promote more stable families, better long term, you know, better long term prospects and, and a future within this community. No, no, no. And much easier to just say Republicans are racist. Republicans are bad and the police are bad and racist. Right. To find external enemies to focus on. But the country is going to the left as it does all this. Even uh, Clyburn says it. Play clip four. This country goes like a pendulum on the clock. This country doesn't move in a linear plane. It goes left for a while. It goes back right for a while. You saw this country go left and elect Barack Obama. It went back right and elected uh, Donald Trump. This country is going back to the left. Now, I tell people all the time, wherever yep. it goes, it passes through the center. It's going left to right, it goes to the center. Right to left, it goes to the center. So this country camps out in the center uh, twice as much as it does the left or right. And this country started moving back to the center uh, within months uh, of having some experiences with Donald Trump. This country's going back to the left, my friends. That's where it's headed right now. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. A second round of looting in Chicago, folks. How many of you have even heard about this before I'm bringing it up? I've already told you, and you've probably seen, that there was, there was substantial media coverage because it was so egregious and outrageous. Uh, the initial round of looting on Sunday, and remember... There was a BLM protest, and then there was coordinated, organized looting. Coordinated and organized looting of stores and uh, boutiques and, you know, commercial enterprises in the, the, the downtown part of Chicago. I mean, this, these, are, these are fancy high-end stores. It wasn't just people who were angry in the neighborhood and started burning down whatever they could see. That happened sometimes, too, with these BLM movements, as we know. But this was this was uh, targeted. Well, there's been another round of it. We had the mayor of Chicago say she's going to flood the zone, right? Lori Lightfoot going to flood the zone with police. And this is not going to be allowed to happen again. This is not going to be allowed to be a circumstance that repeats itself. And then, oh, my gosh, here we are a couple days later. And guess what? It did, in fact, repeat itself. It happened again, almost like these Democrat politicians have no control whatsoever over these looting, rioting mobs. This is from the Chicago Sun-Times. Lightfoot acknowledges residents, businesses justifiably fearful after a second round of looting. 
So the looting happens, and then we're told, oh, okay, well, she's on it now, and she takes this seriously, and anyone who asked her any pointed questions about this was getting a lot of, a lot of pushback. You know, don't bait us, she said to reporters, that she was going to make sure that this was taken care of. And sure enough, wasn't taken care of at, at all, really. Um, they've been unable to stop this. And here's what she said. It's not opportunistic and spontaneous when you already have U-Haul vans and cargo vans and you come equipped with precision tools to break into stores, to break into safes, to haul off cash registers, and when you're coming with arms to fight off the police. While there absolutely was a layer of opportunistic individuals, this was also organized crime, and we are going to break these crews and these rings, and we're going to bring them to justice. That is what we owe the residents of this city, period. This is what Lori Lori Lightfoot, the Democrat mayor of Chicago, is saying that this is actually organized crime stuff. So now BLM is at a minimum, I mean, at a baseline, being used as a a kind of uh, protection, a shield for organized criminal activity that's that's doing tens of tens of millions of dollars of damage to stores. And for the morons in the media, and there are a lot of them who say, well, property isn't violence. Okay, go explain your feelings on destroying property is not violence to people who rely on these stores to be open so that they can get a paycheck to feed their family, so that they have the dignity of providing for themselves and their dependents. Go tell them, sorry, I know it's been a rough pandemic and you've been at home and maybe your store was set to open. Maybe it's already been open for a few weeks, but, you know, people are angry. So that's it. That's all there is to it. In fact, we've heard, I, I told you about this yesterday, but we've started to hear openly the justifications that are given by BLM organizers, not just by a random person on the street or or the first looter who turns around and wants to speak into a camera by actual organizers of BLM, what they think of when you're talking about this looting, right? What what their feelings are. Here's uh, Chicago BLM leader Ariel Atkins, play seven. I care if somebody decides to loot a Gucci or a Macy's or a Nike because that makes sure that that person eats. That makes sure that that person has clothes. That's reparations. That is reparations. Anything they want to take, take it because these businesses have insurance. They're going to get their money back. My people aren't getting anything. It sounds a lot like the way the mafia used to justify things, right? Oh, come on. We're just we're just, uh, you know, getting our peace. But, you know, we're, we're creating order with these unions. And we're just taking a skim off the top. It doesn't it doesn't really hurt anybody. Oh, but they're threatening to kill people behind closed doors if they don't get their way. But, oh, no, they were just taking a skim off the top. In doing so, by the mafia entrenching itself in all these different business interests, whether it's a small, a small grocery store owned by a mom and pop, all the way up to the construction industry with enormous projects, with, with tremendous budgets, they were stealing from those individuals, but they also were stealing from society. Right? They were stealing from people because the cost of things, the cost of labor, the cost of garbage removal. Now you have BLM organizers essentially saying, well, steal the stuff because they have insurance. Oh, where does the money for the insurance companies come from? You know, the, 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 the price of goods will have to be raised to account for this. 
I, I am angry every time I go into my uh, drugstore on my corner. I'm angry about what has become normalized in Midtown Manhattan, where anything that is considered a commodity of, of some substantial value, uh, Zyrtec, razor blades, uh, chocolate, I'm, I'm serious, is now under lock and key. You have to get a, a sales associate. The only stuff that's not under lock and key is like, you know, big... Uh, big tubs of um, of cleaning detergent or things like that. You know, that's not under lock and key. Uh, although they will put some Tide and some of the uh, detergent under. But we're just now we're living in a society increasingly where it's, well, you know, stealing, people steal, and that just gets factored in the cost of business. No. No, we, we don't have to accept this. We, we don't have to allow for theft to be a, a daily part of life. I remember I was, I was in a... Uh, I think it's actually bankrupt now, but I was in a J. Crew store. Probably doesn't surprise you. you know, I've been in a J. Crew store before. And uh, I saw the list that they had posted behind the register as a reminder to the associates of how much had been stolen from that store over the, coast, uh, over the course of a month. And it was jaw dropping. I mean, it was overwhelmingly anything that's cashmere. I mean, there were certain things, but it was tens of thousands of dollars of stuff that over a pretty short period of time had just walked out of the store. And you would say, you know, 15 grand, 20 grand. You start to look at this and you say, uh, this has got to affect, you know, how many salaries is that? How much is that affecting this company's ability to continue to produce goods and services for people? But you see, when, when you're when you're pushing for socialism and identity politics and racial reparations, all of these things together, you're eliminating the basic and foundational understandings that we have in society as to how how we're all responsible for our own actions, how the rules are applicable to all of us, how just because you feel a certain way, it doesn't justify actions based upon that belief. But they're increasingly open about this. And it's not just in this instance, it's not just in this case in, uh, in Chicago. You also have, uh, which I've got to tell you, is, is such a... a key example of what goes wrong when you decide that you're not going to enforce the law anymore and you're not going to hold people accountable. I mean, Chicago is a mess right now. New York is a mess. Chicago is a mess. And for people who say, oh, but there are a lot of parts of the city. First of all, anyone who tells me there are a lot of parts of the city that feel fine in New York doesn't know what the heck they're talking about. Because there are enough parts of the city that are feeling like a, a deserted ghost town that that influences the psychology of everybody else here. There are news stories now every passing day with retailers that are not saying, well, we're not sure when we're going to reopen. They're saying we're never going back. Too expensive, not worth it, too much risk. This is how you destroy a community. This is how you ruin, you ruin a city. And Democrats are actively doing this. Can you imagine what things would be like if the Democrats had not launched this madness campaign of BLM and Antifa and all the things that we're seeing. And they were just able to focus on, on hey, we're going to get you guys back to work. We're going to we're going to bring the country together. Donald Trump has failed you in this pandemic. We're going to make things better for you. We're going to make you safer, happier, healthier. If the Democrats did that, I think it would be it would be tough for Trump, even though I believe they're blaming him unfairly and far, far more than they should where he deserves blame and mostly blaming him for things that aren't his fault at all, and certainly not giving him any credit for things he's done well. 
that would be effective messaging. Instead, the Democrats, they can't help themselves. This is who they are. This is what their party is all about. Emotions, lawlessness, rage, historical grievance. It's very damaging. This is toxic. It's toxic throughout our society. But this is now central to their ideology. So that's why we have this movement, because ultimately I think this is this is of political benefit to Republicans. It is not going to be a benefit to the Biden Kamala ticket. In fact, you see who they've elected. They haven't put forward on the ticket people that are openly aligned with the anti-cop movement that is dominating the Democrat Party. They put people that are kind of going to fake you out on that and say, well, you know, we still think cops are important. Meanwhile, if you if you go and well, they're going to say that. Let me just note. And then also uh, spew a lot of nonsense about, you know, systemic racism and policing. And all. I mean, they're, they're going to do a lot of bowing and and kneeling about all that. But, you know, they're not saying abolish the cops. They're not saying defund all the police departments. Kamala and Biden, the, the mainstream Democrat Party is. But you look at at Portland and they have a new they have a new uh, attorney general or, or sorry, district attorney, not attorney general, a new uh, district attorney there who has put out a list of all of the crimes that will more or less be uh, abandoned as a prosecutorial issue. Presumption. This is an official statement put out by the Portland district attorney. All right. Remember, Portland is a mess. Now, over two months of nightly riots, they've gone out more into the residential areas, not just in the downtown now. They're terrifying people. They attack people who get in their way. Who knows how many millions of dollars of how many millions of dollars of property damage have been done here. And the the new uh, the new district attorney has put this out. We will presumption of dismissal declination. We will presumptively decline to charge cases where the most serious offenses are city ordinance violations and crimes that do not del- do not involve deliberate property damage, theft, or the use or threat of force against another person. Crimes in this category include interference with a police officer, disorderly conduct, criminal trespass, harassment, riot. That's right. They won't use those charges anymore in Portland. I, I, I'm, I'm telling. This is completely serious. I'm telling you the truth. They will not use those charges anymore. They don't they don't find that necessary. They don't find that useful. Um, so you can now if someone tries to arrest an Antifa lunatic for, let's say, breaking in the window of a federal courthouse and trying to set it on fire, his buddies can all mob that police officer, push them, shove them off and try to help. Them. No charges. Interference with the police officer. No charges. Unless they're going to try to claim assault on a police officer. But they won't make that stick as long as the officer doesn't have any injuries. Right. And it have to be pretty serious injuries. When I talk to you about lawlessness, when I talk to you about the Democrats abandoning rule of law, it's not an exaggeration. It's an observation. The left has overtaken what we thought of as the center left Democrat Party. Now, they are a bunch of socialist identity politics, woke lunatics. And this is including people who are in roles like district attorney, state attorney general. And all the way up. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. This is not about the money. And it certainly isn't about, you know, the demonstrators. I mean, be real. I have a lot thicker skin than that. 
It really is about the overarching lack of respect for the officers, the men and women who work so hard day in and day out. Lack of respect for the officers. That is the uh, former now, or about to resign, police chief in Seattle, Carmen Best. I believe she's the first African-American woman to hold that role in Seattle. She's resigning. She's quitting her job because people are so disrespectful to cops. Now, I, I want to make sure that we, we have no illusions about this. I want to make sure that everybody is very, very clear. Disrespect for cops is a problem of the Democrat Party. This has been a creation of the Democrat Party. This is something that they have pushed for with the BLM movement, the lies that it is based on. I don't just mean the original founding myth of BLM, that Mike Brown was murdered by a racist white cop, but the lies that young black men are routinely murdered by unarmed black men who aren't in the process of trying to seriously harm or kill somebody are routinely murdered by police officers without consequence. That's the foundational lie of the entire BLM movement. It's just not true. But if enough people believe that, then they will have a disrespect for law enforcement. Then they will think that cops are a problem. And we're seeing this happen now. This is all cause and effect, my friends. This is very clear. Nobody should feel the least bit surprised by this, right? We knew this would happen as soon as the protests were out again, screaming about Black Lives Matter, but also about racist cops and a racist system and the undermining of everything about our society by the claim that we haven't made the progress that we really have in race relations um, over the last, well, since the beginning, really, since the founding. I mean, the, the progress that we have made, if you were to chart it from the beginning of this nation's founding, is uh, something that, yes, it's a troubled past and there are historical wrongs, but one would think that it's a source of pride where we are today, an incredibly diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious nation that gets along pretty darn well and would get along even better if we didn't have leftists constantly trying to separate us by skin color and religion and everything else. But it is effective for their purposes, for the acquisition of political power. It's, it's effective for their, uh, their own narrow benefit. And so that's what we hear about. And that's the reality of the Democrat Party today. But you got Lori Lightfoot, African-American female mayor of uh, Chicago, feeling like, you know, she can't get things under control there with the looting. You got the Portland district attorney and the mayor of Portland, Ted Wheeler, no ability whatsoever to get a handle on these Antifa riots happening every night. Seattle had the autonomous zone. And now the police chief is resigning because he's like, there's so much disrespect for cops going on. Respect for cops should be a cultural norm. It should be it should be something that we all understand the same way that still, fortunately, there is a a, a bipartisan although it's much more common on, for conservatives than leftists. I'm just going to say it. I mean, leftists can still hate the military, and they do. But most mainstream Democrats will at least show you know, respect to the military. Let, let's be, mo, you're not going to have a lot of Democrat politicians who are openly disrespectful to the military. You do have a lot of Democrat politicians who are openly disrespectful to cops and to law enforcement. And that's something that needs to change because the downside of this, the negatives from it are all around us. I mean, I, I can't even go and visit my parents now without practically stumbling over 
uh, a crazy heroin addict lying in the street where I live because de Blasio thinks that it's mean, that it's not really it's not really in the interest of social justice to take people who are basically completely uh, mentally disturbed and get them assistance. No, let them wallow in the streets. And if cops try to remove them, then all they have to do is scream, oh, the cop is being rough with me. And de Blasio and other Democrats will rush to the scene and say, oh, this is brutality. Oh, this is terrible. Taking the other side against the cops is going to have consequences. And we know that because we're seeing it. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Content warning. I'm going to tell you a story now that will upset you, but you need to hear it. I think you need to hear it. I think you should be aware of this. And I can also tell you that it is almost certainly the case that you have not heard this anywhere else. Um, Maybe a, a couple of you will have seen some mention of this on social media. But... No, this is, this is a story that is being actively buried by the national news media. And I told you it's a content warning because it's a story that will... It, it's so upsetting that you, you wonder how something like this could, could happen in the world at all. I mean, how could something so evil be done? I don't like to say occur, be done. And there's a name that you should know. Um, the name is Canon Hinant, and Canon Hinant is a five-year-old uh, is a five-year-old boy, and he was, uh, and I think this was down in uh, North in North Carolina. He was riding his bike. He's five-year-old boy. He's riding his bike, and he's just enjoying himself. He's with his two young sisters. Canon's just about to start kindergarten. It's a kindergarten age child and his next door neighbor is a man named Darius Sessoms and Cannon and uh, Cannon's family knew Darius his parents had interacted with them had no prior history of any problems whatsoever and Darius uh, and, and Cannon was on his on his little bicycle and was on, went on it with his bicycle over Darius Sessom's his next door neighbor's lawn for a moment. Right, he's a five year old boy. Darius Sessom's went into his house, came out, produced a firearm, and executed five year old Cannon Hinnant with a gunshot wound to the head in broad daylight in front of his two uh, young sisters. Executed him. Just just shot him right in the head in front of his in front of his sisters, in front of his family. Uh, murdered, murdered this young boy. And you, you say that you, you hear this, you think, how could this how could this happen? How could any person be so evil, so disgusting? And. Uh, the, the, it's I, I, don't, I don't have an answer for you, friends. I don't know. His sisters were eight and seven years old. Sisters were eight and seven years old. They, they just watched their, their five-year-old brother. Do you think they're ever going to really recover from that? You have a little boy murdered. Do you think his parents will ever recover from, from what happened? 
There was there was no I mean, to say there's no provocation is even just as, as senseless as, as it gets. The only the only thing that anyone can point to is that he rode his little little tricycle on Darius Sessoms, 25 years old, on his lawn. And then Sessoms took off in a car, tried to evade police, and they, they caught up with him. They have him. Um, and yeah, the GoFundMe that was established for uh, for the family here of um, of young uh, Canon Hinnant says that it was because Darius was a you know that he was upset that he rode his bicycle on on his lawn. Yeah, that's right. Um, why haven't you heard this story? Don't you think that a guy? who's 25 years old, in broad daylight, in front of other children, walking up to a five-year-old boy with a, with a gun and, and, and killing him. I mean, it's, it's honestly hard to talk about this. Blowing his brains out in front of his two sisters and with his parents just inside in the house. Five-year-old boy. Don't you think that's a news story? Does, doesn't that, doesn't that, oh... Why haven't you heard of this? Why haven't you heard of this news story? Um, not not touched on by CNN. I, I did a Google News search yesterday. Nothing came up. Nothing came up. I think since then the Daily Mail has picked it up. Uh, well, it turns out, if you look more into the case, you see that Darius Sessoms, 25 years old, is a young uh, black male. He is, a, he is a black man. He's 25 years old. And... Uh, Canon Hinnant, the five-year-old, is a five-year-old, uh, was a five-year-old white child. And the only reason you could think of that the media would think this is not a story is that they would consider it unhelpful for people to know about this. Now you'd say, what, what do you mean unhelpful, Buck? Well, there's a narrative out there right now. There's a narrative that there is a, there is hatred that only goes one way that exists in society that uh, white people in America, and it's just white people who are the racist, that white people are oppressing and, and even killing uh, young black men. When We're talking about police now, but killing young black men because of racism and systemic racism, and that this is the greatest public safety and, uh, and violence threat that we face in society today. This is the narrative of the left. This is what they tell us. And yet we have an incident like this and you'd say, oh, hold on a second. Why should we not know about this? They don't like the liberal media doesn't like the optics. They don't like the optics of this. And if you're wondering, well, why do I focus in on this for a moment? Why am I spending your time on a, on a national radio show to tell you about this incident in North Carolina? Other than it's just it, this is a horrific beyond words. I've I can't think of another incident where somebody. Young young people in Chicago, young young black children in Chicago are killed by uh, by bullets when gangbangers are trying to shoot each other. But it, it's usually not. I can't think of a case where someone walked up to a five year old and and shot him in the head on purpose like this, a five year old. And I, I will ask you this. I will I will tell you to, to think about this. Imagine for a second, because I'll say this is just one person and it has no meaning. Okay, that's what they're going to say. There's no meaning for the narrative. Whatever, however you want to take that. Imagine if a 25-year-old white man walked up to a 5-year-old black child and shot that child in the head in front of his family and parents. 
Do, do you think that that would be the lead news story on CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times for, for weeks afterwards? I mean, this would be if there, there would be every Democrat politician. There would be a national uh, a national outcry and outrage. And yes, there might be riots and there might be looting and there might be really terrible things that happen. We all know that that's true. No, no honest, serious person would disagree with that. They can pretend, but that's there. And then they're just being uh, then they're just being open liars. But why is it that this happens? And not only do we not expect riots and politicians, and other people to weigh in on this. But because it's a 25 year old black man who killed a five year old boy, executed a five year old white boy uh, in front of his family. News media doesn't want to touch. They don't even think this is a story. Something this horrific hits a very basic human part of you. And, and I'm sorry, but, you know, we've spent months now uh, mourning as a country the death of a guy who was an adult, a career criminal who refused police commands, who had meth and uh, fentanyl in his system enough to kill him. When he was arrested and we have murals being painted and we have people getting fired from their jobs for not begging and pleading for, oh, I'm, I'm anything for the martyr George Floyd. Oh, I, just anything I can do to show my obedience to the cause for months. And you have this uh, this incident where a five year old boy as blameless and innocent as any child could be is murdered in broad daylight. And it's not even a news story. I know they'd say, oh, Buck, but it's police versus. Yeah, but, you know, here's step one of not suffering from of not having a violent interaction with cops. Don't be violent against cops. That's that's step one. Don't refuse commands. Don't wrestle them. Don't fight against them. That's step one. Well, now we're never allowed to talk about that. This isn't even a news story. This doesn't even get any coverage. Friends, how can we pretend that we're having an honest conversation in this country about violence, about justice, about race? When this is buried, it's buried. This has been this is a story that has been intentionally buried. You do not or you will not hear. You have not heard Canon Hinant's name in the national media and you won't. Because they, they think they serve a, a, a bigger, a higher purpose. The constant exaggeration of racism in this country, which the news media is always doing. And the pretense that there is only hatred that extends in one direction here. One direction. Do you, do you think that they would be willing to impute motives, motives of a, of a uh, bigoted or racial nature if this was a 25-year-old white man who shot a 5-year-old uh, black child in front of his family for no reason in broad daylight? I, I'm sure the media would be willing to impute they would look through his social media. Oh, you know, if he was a if he was a Trump supporter or something, it must be because you know he's a white nationalist, and they'd go for all this stuff. But in this case, do you think anyone will even raise the possibility that there was any racial animus in this execution? No, they won't. They, I'm saying they won't even they won't even think that it's a possibility. They won't even think it's a possibility. No, instead, you have uh, this cold blooded killer who. Is not even is not even considered a real news story, not even a real news story. I'm I, I'm sorry. The national news media they are in fact the enemy of the people. Um, they are morally uh, morally decrepit and disgraceful. 
And uh, they, I, I don't know how they sleep at night, other than to, to conti- uh, continue to believe in, the, in these delusions that, that, for example, racial animus is only possible. This is the liberals believe this. They think that racism is only possible from white people against other people. That there, there is no other, there's no other version of it. There's no, uh, from the other side, hatred that could be considered bigotry because of the structure and historical oppression and all this stuff. But no, if we, if we think about human nature and human beings, people are, all people of all colors are able to choose evil. All people are able to, and do, uh, choose hatred, choose to despise others for immutable characteristics. And we, we are in a total lockdown as a country about this. We cannot, you can never speak about the possibility of hatred that exists against people who are supposed to be the oppressor against people who we're told are the the reason for all systemic oppression no it's racism is a one-way street we are or we're told and that is that is democrat dogma and so that's why when they when they adhere to this when they believe all these things that also influences the way that news stories get covered and as i've said this is if you change the races around of the victim and the and the uh, and the murderer here, this is an enormous national news. Story. Why? Why is it enormous? We all know it would be. I mean, George Floyd is an enormous news story. This guy, uh, you know, is an adult. He's interacting with cops where he's you know he's a criminal and you know he is being aggressive or I shouldn't say aggressive, yeah, you know, unwilling to respond. That's a huge. We've had the whole country, the president, everyone's had to talk about this. This situation. No, there's nothing else, nothing else to say. They're just a ra- just a random guy doing a bad thing, and he'll go to prison for it. End of story. And you don't even need to hear about it. Well, that's that's very convenient for the narrative, isn't it? You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Joe Biden said not long ago that well-armed police become, in his words, the enemy when confronting lawlessness in our streets. Well, I want to assure you that your president, your vice president, and the overwhelming majority of the American people know that the men and women of law enforcement are the best people in this country. <laughs> law enforcement isn't the problem. Law enforcement is the solution. Very clear separation between the two parties on this one. Democrats have have really uh, they've boxed themselves in now. They, they are all about the delusion that law enforcement is the cause of society's ills in, in a country that has had plummeting overall plummeting violence and uh, it, it has been getting safer until this year. This year is the anomaly. What what changed this year? Oh, that's right. Democrats started saying law enforcement was the problem. Law enforcement was the problem. And, and it's just. It's wrong. I think that the the lifestyle libs out there, the, the way that they are, the way that they're frauds in general upsets me. But that when they're frauds, when it comes to safety and security, when they're when they're frauds who push ideas and beliefs out there that they feel like they're safe from and it makes them feel good to say it, but they're not going to have to suffer the consequences. That's the worst. That's where I really just completely lose any patience whatsoever with libs and this is on the issue of law enforcement and what's going on with the crime surge across the country it's absolutely what's happening it's happening all over the place 
So uh, I, I find this uh, disgusting. Oh, remember uh, the, the guy who I think he's an adult now, so we're allowed to criticize him for a while. He, the libs love this guy because he was one of the high school students at the, at the terrible shooting, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. But he became a huge uh, anti NRA guy. And, you know, we got to ban the guns. And I mean, he's an imbecile. He's, an, he's a guy's a nimrod, doesn't know anything about anything. Now he's an adult. I can say it. Public figure. There was a while where if you called this guy out, you, you were risking your job. Oh, corporate media. Oh, we need to have a boycott. You, he's just a child. They do the same thing with Greta. Oh, let's let her dictate to us what global policy is on climate. Um, she's an ignoramus. She doesn't know anything. Oh, she's a child. Oh, well, I'm glad we're listening to a child. Libs, no principles, no principles, just emotions, coercion, and you know whatever feels good. Um. David Hogg was talking about why he hesitates running for office. Play 12. But we've got to start rebuilding uh, and build back better this country um, now or else it might be too late for the next generation. And if we don't go out and vote, uh, Gen Z could end up being the last generation. Do you plan on voting or running for office, David? Um, I mean, honestly, I don't know. It's something that I'm always conflicted about because I think about you know, pushing the system from the outside and making people uncomfortable. Um, and, but then I look at someone like John Lewis, who was, you know, so amazing. Like he, he talked to us in the, in, the, in the weeks after the shooting and helped offer us advice. And I think it's important to have the right people on the outside and the inside. But also, I mean, frankly, I think we got enough uh, cisgendered great white men in office right now, and it might be time for a little more diversity. So I don't know. Enough white men in office, David Hogg says. So maybe he's not going to run for office. No, he shouldn't run for office because he's not very smart. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we got a first-time guest on the show, somebody we've been hoping to have on for a while. She has been doing some great stuff over at Blaze Media. She is the host of a podcast called Relatable over there. Uh, we have Allie Beth Stuckey with us now. She's also an author of a new book that is out right now that we're going to be telling you all about uh, called You're Not Enough and That's Okay. Well, we're going to have to hear about that. Allie, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So uh, this is one of those titles which you read and you say, okay, <laughs> please explain. please." Because usually I feel like books are all, you're more than enough. You're wonderful. You're amazing. This one's like, man, maybe exactly. a different approach. What's going on? Exactly. So we do hear those platitudes a lot, that you're perfect the way you are, that the most important thing is that you feel good about yourself. We've actually been hearing that for decades from psychologists, for example, claiming that low self-esteem is the reason for all of society's problems and that if we had high self-esteem, there would be no criminals, there would be no academic failure, everyone would be able to accomplish their dreams and so on. The fact of the matter is, study after study shows that's just not true. Our society's biggest problem isn't a low self-esteem and there's not necessarily a correlation between just feeling good about yourself all the time and any level of success. So this book is not about self-deprecation or the importance of self-loathing. It is escaping from the lie that we're perfect the way we are and that the most important thing in our lives is to just feel good about ourselves and to do what makes us happy. That there's actually a lot of fulfillment that comes from serving other people, from looking out uh, for the interests of other people, sacrificing for a cause like your country, like a marriage or kids, and that there is a lot of joy 
and a lot of fulfillment and taking yourself out of the center of your universe and in being a part of something that is bigger than you. So that is the point of this book. And that's why you are not enough. Tell me more about this, uh, this idea that, that you're, you're tackling in the book that people think that they're perfect. Maybe it's because I come from New York or <laughs> I work in media. I mean, I feel like are, are we bifurcated now? Are we separated into a culture where they're the people that feel like it's just a constant struggle to be good enough in their own eyes or people think that they're just amazing and perfect exactly as they are? Because I feel like I know a lot of people who uh, self-loathing is a bigger problem than self-love. So it's a little bit of both. Ironically, it's happening at the same time. Now, this is, I would say, a message that is directed more towards young women. So you can find a lot of tough love, uh, tough love books and resources for young men telling them how to be disciplined, how to be better, how to just kind of buck up. But for women, the resources that we get are you are beautiful and perfect the way you are. Now, the reason why we still see so much self-loathing and self-deprecation and just being down on yourself, and you're absolutely right, that is insanely prevalent in our society, is not because people aren't being told to love themselves, and it's not because people aren't focusing enough on themselves. It's actually because we're focusing on ourselves too much. We're so self-obsessed. We are so... Um, we're so fixated on what we think of ourselves. We're so fixated on making sure we truly are perfect the way we are that we actually end up being on this hamster wheel of telling ourselves how awesome we are and how perfect we are while simultaneously trying to prove it. And you see that in self-help books that say, hey, you're already perfect and awesome the way you are, but to be really perfect and awesome, you need to read my book. You need to follow my 10-step program. You need to do my exercise you know, program, whatever it is. And so... Unfortunately, people, because we're so self-focused and self-centered in general, um, that is why you are seeing at the same time an obsession with self-love while also seeing a lot of people that struggle with self-loathing. So the antidote to those things is to stop obsessing over what we think about us, stop placing ourselves in the center of our universe, and to realize the world doesn't revolve around us, to check your faith. What do you believe in? Who are you? Where does your value come from? Does it come from your own opinions about you? Or does it come from your faith? Does it come from your family? Does it come from something that is bigger than you? So that is the desire of this book, to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put it outward. We're speaking to Ali Beth Stuckey. She's got a new book out, You're Not Enough and That's Okay, Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love. Ali, you're you're a, a young lady and an outspoken conservative. What does it mean to be a what's it like, I guess might be a better question, to be a young conservative woman in the public eye these days in America, given what the culture is always telling us? Well, you certainly feel like you're swimming upstream, and I know that you feel the same way. Any conservative of any age or any gender at this point feels like they are swimming upstream, like they're going against the grain, like they are speaking out at risk of, you know, being canceled at any time. Now, you and I are almost in the safest position that you can be because we're not going to get fired for being conservative. We're not going to get fired for supporting Donald Trump because we're paid to do that. But I do feel a responsibility to represent, um, you know, what we call the silent majority, the conservative women who feel like they can't speak out at work, who can't talk about their values, who can't share my posts or your posts, who can't criticize something like Black Lives Matter, who can't talk about bias in the media because they're scared. They will get canceled. They will get fired. They will get ostracized from their friends, fellow church members. 
And so I feel a real responsibility and an obligation to those people to kind of give those people cover by saving the things that I know that they're thinking and caring about so that they don't feel like they are alone. They don't feel like they're crazy or radical or extreme because, um, of course, we believe that they're they're not. Um, and so I guess that's how it feels. It certainly doesn't feel good to make yourself vulnerable to onslaught, uh, an onslaught of criticism every day, people telling you that you're a bigot just because, you know, you believe in lower taxes or something or you don't like abortion. But um, I do. I just feel such a responsibility and a burden to speak for the people who feel like they can't speak up. It's always fascinating to me because as somebody who lives in New York, was born and raised in New York and has only lived in two cities, New York and D.C., which, as we know, are both very uh, expensive, right. com- expensive communist enclaves. Um, yeah. y- young women, I mean, you just you grow up with this mentality here and it's around me all the time that young women are just not conservative. I mean, that's the and I know that's not true, but in major cities, even the young women who are ideologically conservative, and I would add traditional in their ideology to that, too, right? Believe in male and female gender roles. Uh, they are they are absolutely terrified to ever let that be known. So there really is this feeling. And one, I do think there, you know, in New York, there's three Democrats for every Republican in New York, uh, New York State, New York City. It's more like eight to one. So that's a real phenomenon of numbers. But it's even more than that. There's, there is a perception that young women uh, aren't able to be young women and be conservative in cities. Well, at least out. I mean, I think you're you're a Texas based, right? At least in other parts of the country, it feels like there's more of an open more, more of an openness to it where there are 25 year old female Trump supporters. That that is a that is a unicorn in New York, yeah. Los Angeles, D.C. Right. Well, I think that feminism probably can take a lot of credit for the feeling that young women have that they can't be a conservative because that means that they're internalizing some kind of oppression. Feminism, of course, first wave feminism said you need to be freed from your husband. Second wave feminism said that you can be freed from your kids. Third wave feminism is now saying you can be freed from your gender. And so it's constantly trying to break down um, women's feelings of being defined a certain way. And so young women wanting to feel independent, wanting to feel like they can break the gender norm and they can pursue their careers. Of course, there's something wrong with pursuing your career. I did the same thing. But for whatever reason, they feel like that equates to feminism. That equates to leftism. That equates to being a Democrat. That's what it means to be liberated. That's what it means to be powerful and independent as a young career-minded woman. Unfortunately, they don't realize the repercussions of that, Um, the repercussions of voting for a far left teetering on communistic party. All the entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurial spirit that a lot of young women have is going to be crushed by the very party that they say that they support. So as I find with a lot of young leftists, though, there's not, I mean, maybe this is unfair to say, but in my experience, there's not a whole lot of thinking through the consequences of leftism. And I think that's unfortunately especially true among young women. Oh, this is this is certainly true. And it goes back to even my time on a very liberal college campus where I used to joke around, but I was really also serious that uh, liberals grow up uh, intellectually or, or uh, intellectually flabby because they don't actually yeah. have to work the muscle of thinking through things themselves. And they certainly don't have to fight for their ideas in a way that young conservatives do. Uh, but it's just good to hear that there are people out there. I'm sure you have uh, young people, male and female, but you know, young women in particular reaching out. Because, you know, there aren't a lot of, you know, Ali, you're you're in a 
you're in a pretty small category in terms of how many people are in your age demo are female and are and are conservative like you are. I mean, really, how, how many are there that one can think of off the top of their head? I mean, maybe one hand, maybe two hand you can count them on. Right. Yeah, it certainly seems like the number is small. Now, the things that I'm seeing now is millennials are getting older. The oldest millennials are almost 40. The youngest millennials are probably 23. So, of course, we see change, political change happen as it does among any generation once they start getting paid every week and they start getting that huge chunk out of their paycheck and they say, I don't like this. But also, as millennials are becoming parents, and of course, we know that's kind of happening later than it used to. But as millennials are becoming parents, they start to care a little bit more about things like abortion. They start to care a little bit more about things like religious liberty. They care a little bit more about things like school choice. And unfortunately, we're seeing an attack on all of those things. We're seeing an attack on life, seeing an attack on school choice. We're seeing an attack on religious liberty and even freedom of speech. This, I think, these are things that that people care about the older they get and the more responsibility they have. And that certainly includes moms. And I would say it especially includes moms, moms living in suburban areas, moms with kids. They want security. They want stability. They want to be able to make money. And I, I hopefully, I, I am hoping that they see right now a clear picture of where leftism takes us in regards to those things. Allie Beth Stuckey, you're not enough and that's okay. Her book out now. Allie, please come back and hang out with us at the Freedom Hut. It was fun. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Buck. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. The soccer mom vote is in play. Yes, indeed. This is going to be a critical constituency for whoever is going to be the next president of the United States. Uh, you have Trump touting and uh, Fox covering this today, Trump touting that he, quote, says they want safety and are thrilled that I ended the long running program where low income housing would invade their neighborhood. Trump says Um, this is one of these areas where you have liberals have all kinds of talking points about this. They have a lot of things they want to say about it. But the moment they're confronted with their own life, their own choices, their own the, uh, the effect it would have on their lives, the hypocrisy is just mind-blowing. The hypocrisy is, is incredible. And uh, this is where they say, oh, let's have uh, projects built in suburban areas. That's what they want now. They, they, they fail to stop and think. This is, and this is where Trump and Biden are separate, because Biden's saying that he will bring back what was being done during the Obama administration, where they take zoning regulations and federal dollars through uh, subsidized housing. And they want to set up in uh, suburbs with low crime rates and good schools, set up uh, more housing projects. Now, they do this pretending that they don't think that that would result in changes to whether these are uh, schools that function as well and whether there would be a change in crime in the neighborhood. Let me let me before I I dive more into the, the way this affects suburbs, let's look at the What's going on in New York City right now, where you have uh, vagrants, uh, homeless people, drug addicts, uh, sex offenders who now I'm not saying this is not the same as being in public housing, but I'm just trying to make a point here about neighborhood value and neighborhood deterioration and Democrats pretending like, oh, we we don't know what's going to happen. Why do you think you know what's going to happen? They've taken 
drug addicts and vagrants and the, the city of New York is at the cost of $2 million plus every day. $2 million a day. Taking you know, over, I think it's 15,000 now homeless people, thirteen to 15,000 homeless people, and putting them in luxury hotels in neighborhoods with high property values. And you know what ends up happening? People in those neighborhoods are saying that they feel unsafe, there's more crime, there's more uh, public urination, people doing drugs in the streets, or whatever. W- w- was, that, was that a surprise to anybody in the Democrat ranks that that would happen? No. No, but they, they, want, they want everyone else, not themselves, but they want everyone else to have to deal with social dysfunction. You have to suffer through social dysfunction, too. You can't work hard, live in a nice neighborhood where there's low crime, where there's good schools, and expect it to stay that way. No, we're going to supplant. We're, we're going to take social dysfunction and put it right next to you and see how, see how you like that. Okay. So that's true in the case of, of vagrants and homelessness and everything else. Now, public housing is even, you know, for, dem- for libs, this is even more um, an area where there'll be a lot of virtue signaling because, yes, overwhelmingly public housing is uh, full of people who are law-abiding, trying to raise their families, trying to do the right thing. And that's true. But public housing itself brings down property values because, one, public housing is never, no one's ever going to, you know, spend millions of dollars to make it all really nice and beautiful looking. That's not what happens. Having spent more time than I, you know, have time to talk about now in and around projects because of my time at the NYPD in particular. Uh, So the property value declines. And also public housing is always, always a higher crime rate than what you have in middle income and and above uh, zones of, of different residential areas. Okay, that's just that's just the reality. You know, I mean, let's say always, I don't know, 99 times out of 100, 95 times out of 100, if you look at. So now that's not to say that everyone who lives in public housing is committing crime. Of course not. But by moving public housing into low crime areas, you're almost guaranteeing that there will be greater crime in those areas. And people can want to avoid crime. Now, there are reasons there are complicated socioeconomic reasons for why public housing. Now we get into, you know, crime and poverty and families that are not intact and all the different reasons why public housing isn't something that you would want to live next to. But if it's no problem, why doesn't Nancy Pelosi live next to the projects? Why doesn't she move to Oakland and move move next to a housing project? No, she lives in a mansion. Why does Joe Biden get to live out in, in a multimillion dollar home in Delaware? You know, what, all these Democrats that push these policies, what's their problem? Why won't they why won't they move? into a majority minority part of a city and live right next to a large housing project. What's wrong? Those are just people that are living there that, right? Why are their actions always so different from what they try to mandate through government force for the rest of us? We all know why, because they're hypocrites. Because they're hypocrites. Look, there are downsides to the suburbs. They don't have as much population density, restaurants, cultural events, and so on and, and so on and so forth that they do in cities. Right. So, you know, I'm not I'm not a big suburb guy. Personally, I've lived in cities my whole life. But let's not pretend that we don't know that when the state subsidizes housing for low income individuals and and creates housing to that effect, not that that helps people with Section 8 vouchers in housing that is privately owned. But when the state creates housing with housing projects that brings down property values and and generally becomes 
a, a high crime uh, a higher crime area. We know we've run this experiment for decades, for 50 years now. But Biden wants to pretend that it's it's Trump being a, a bigot by saying that we don't want to rezone suburbs to make them uh, to, to put projects and do the social engineering of putting projects in them. Uh, let's see what the suburban soccer moms think, folks. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Remember, everybody, tomorrow is my, uh, for this week, going to be the last day that I do the show. I'll be back on Monday, obviously, but I've got to be out on Friday. I'm going down to North Carolina, to Craven County, North Carolina. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm down there for the weekend, uh, and then I have to come back and, I think, lock myself in, like, a hyperbaric chamber or something or some kind of a, a cell, you know, because I, oh, my gosh, I'm going to North Carolina New York acts like going to North Carolina is is going to the moon or something, and you might have, you know, lunar lunar dusts that the aliens are hiding. I don't know, whatever. I'm just saying you can't. You're not allowed to travel without coming back and getting all kinds of harassed. But I do want you to call in. Producer Mark feels like he has not heard from enough of you this week on the voice messages. Remember, thirty second time limit, folks. Thirty second time limit, please. Uh, unless you're saying really nice things about me and Mark, and then you can go longer. But it's 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. That is the phone number. Please do call us. Great. And with that, uh, let's get to, oh, and remember, teambuck at iheartmedia.com. If you want to email us your thoughts for roll call, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And for all my Team Buck Gen Z in the house, follow me on the Instagram, especially because who knows how long TikTok's actually even going to be around anymore so follow me buck sexton on instagram the gram is i think with the right producer mark you're cool that's what the cool kids say yes and you act like you're on tiktok i'm i i i i don't post or yeah you I use tiktok on, but I, you're not you're not i've uh, seen you know. i've done look they, there's some cooking videos that i really like on tiktok yeah cooking videos dog videos yeah, you know how many people i've watched convert a van or a bus into a home I also like the uh, the shuffle dance. I don't do it, but it looks kind of cool when people teach themselves to do the shuffle dance. You know what I'm talking about? There's a couple of them, yeah. No, I, I, there's a lot of, I mean, there's endless variations of it, but I'm saying there's some, you know, uh, that, that's a big TikTok thing is people learn how to shuffle dance. So, anyway. Uh, all right. Well, what's your favorite TikTok video? Are there like a lot of hockey fights or something on TikTok? No. Why, why do you think that's what I would automatically gravitate towards? And you like hockey. I just get sucked in. You just start looking at them, and I don't really care what's on. If it's interesting, I keep watching. Yeah, I agree. Well, TikTok is a great time waster, but also apparently a Chinese surveillance scam, depending <laughs> depending on who you listen to. So there's that. Although if they, if they sell themselves to Microsoft, then it's just going to be an app that is owned by a U.S. company, I think. And remember, folks, for all the people that are all, oh, China's going to have all the surveillance. Okay, yeah. There are a bunch of lib companies, Facebook, Google, uh, they've already got all your stuff. They've already got all your data. So I just want to point that out. You know, they've kind of got you covered. Um, all right, Gene. Not sure why teachers are so fearful. Um, before this virus, they taught kids who were coming to school with all sorts of sickness that uh, because parents sent them to school sick, even if they had to work. 
Now with the virus, I would think it would be safer for people because they're more aware. Yeah, Gene, I, the, you know, the, the fight to reopen schools has become so very politicized. And I do think that it's clear there are a lot of people who are just making it up as they go along now. It, it doesn't really matter that what they're saying about COVID risk is untrue or anything else. They don't want to they don't want to open schools. They don't want to open schools. So there you go. Patrick writes, Buck, listening to your podcast may be the only reason I go to work. Well, Patrick, thank you so much, man. I want to play a little devil's advocate real quick. A lot of conservatives are Christians. A lot of conservative talking heads are calling for the people to speak up. According to Paul's first letter to Thessalonians, we should lead a quiet life. Does God really want us to fight? Well, I think the answer is yes, my friend. I think you could find a lot of Bible verses about how they will scorn you and they will they will hate you for speaking the truth. So I'm, I, I think speaking the truth is important. And I think that spreading the good word is a, an obligation. But, you know, look, I sometimes think about I have a quiet life. You know, what could it be like? Go to a nice place, especially now. I mean, what do I really need? Need some, you know, food is so good everywhere now. Food tastes good everywhere. You can get high quality. When I say, I don't mean fancy, but I just mean you can get, you know, good food anywhere in the, in the United States. You got entertainment options galore. You know, you don't need a lot to be happy. You don't need a lot to be happy. What is this entertainment you speak of? What do you mean? I assume you mean going places. No, I meant like PS4, Netflix, and yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm saying virtual entertainment and and movie theaters. No, no, no. Oh no! If you want to live life and be around other human beings, or like go to an event, you're you're out of luck. I don't know what that is anymore. That's what I'm saying. Oh yeah, no, I I I know. Um, look, we're we're here in New York, and are we, I'm just never going to go to the gym again. I mean, they're going to have to roll me around in a muumu at this rate. Like, I can never go to a gym again. What what is happening here? I got a two for one say, deal oh, on wheelless. Oh, so I can't work out, and I'm supposed to just the I I can't see people. I can't like hang out, do fun things, go places. But I'm just going to stay home all day, work all day, and then eat like you know grilled chicken and some legumes no i'm it's not gonna work it's not gonna fly i got Obviously. a uh, two-for-one deal on wheelbarrows you want to go 50 50 with me yeah man we're gonna need them I, I i wish i had the discipline to to you know either work out at home a lot but my my home is like 400 square feet it's tiny so i wish i had the discipline to work out at home a lot or to do some of these things that we're told but you know anyway anyway Anyway, uh, I know I'm whining. I'm why. Stop whining. Stop whining, Buck. It's a Schwarzenegger thing. I remember that. No. Kindergarten cop, which is now banned because it, it glorifies cops. Uh, so there you go, Patrick. That was my that was my answer for you on all that stuff. Now, um, Michael is next. Hello, Buck and producer Mark. I'm very frustrated and more than a bit pissed off. I was raised by an ignorant and racist man. I went out in the world and educated myself to overcome that racism. I then raised my kids to be truly colorblind, thus moving forward toward an end of racism. Now, these nitwits have dragged us all backwards so that my grandchildren will be taught that race is the only thing that matters. A very frustrating conclusion to my growth and attempt to make the generations to follow better than what came before me. Well, Michael, I think there are a lot of people who feel this way. that They feel that, uh, that viewing the world through a, a race-neutral lens where you just care about you know, the content of a person's character, not the color of their skin. We, we, we have this 
there is this paradigm that exists where you can just treat other human beings as other human beings and automatically approach them as equal in dignity, worth, uh, you know, and show them equal kindness, love, and, you know, you, you, I have to go through this all the time, right? You all understand what I'm saying. That's one approach to life. Or you can say, well, you can do this, but that person can do that because this person's this color and you're that color. And we're, where does that end? It is toxic. Race politics are toxic. It just divides people. It creates distrust. It creates separation and it undermines the basis, you know, the common basis of our of our humanity, of our shared humanity, which is a bond that we should always be fostering in every way that we can. Race politics, um, you know, chips away at that. Race politics divides us. They treat people differently based on skin color and then are insisting that people not be treated differently based on skin color. That's not a good that's not a good strategy. Uh, I mean, this is like the Supreme Court line. I think it was Scalia. It may have been. um, I I think it was Scalia that if you want if you want people to stop discriminating. Oh, it might have been Alito. But if you want people to stop discriminating on the basis of race, stop discriminating on the basis of race. You know, if you want racism to end, stop treating people differently because of their race. Right. That would be that's workable. That makes sense. But that's not what the left does. The left says, if you want racism to end, let's create a racial entitlement system. Let's create a constant uh, gauging of who's doing what to whom, either presently or historically uh, through a racial through through the prism of race. It's just like I said, it's toxic. It's destructive. It does not move us forward. In fact, it moves us backward and is damaging. But Michael Remember, moral action is a good in its own right. So just because the libs are trying to ruin things doesn't mean that you have to let them change anything about you. Keep doing what you're doing, my friend. John Shields High, real news fan, an interesting pick for Joe Biden. They have a bit of history. I can't help think she was chosen because she checks off boxes in the liberal social justice column. I'm really convinced that she was chosen So Biden can resign on day two and the Democrats can say we got the first black woman president and John Wright's commie bear lives. Uh, Yeah, look, I I think that Biden is going to be in a great position for his own purposes. Think about this. You get to be a hero to your party for all eternity. You go down the history books as a great man. All you have to do is is after you've won the presidency that's effectively been handed to you by the establishment hand it back to the Democrat establishment and say uh, that, you know, you're, you're offering your position really to Kamala Harris, the first minority female president. Interesting. I've, I've noted people saying that she, you know, depending on the circumstances of she, she sometimes identifies as she did in a Mindy Kaling interview as Indian uh, and other times identifies as, as black. And I know she has parentage from, that are are both Indian. One parent is Indian. One parent is, is uh, Jamaican. Um, and you're going to see they're calling her the first South Asian and the first black female vice presidential candidate. OK. Um, interesting. So because they think she's just she's both. OK. Ashley. Hey, Buck and producer Mark, just want to write in to tell you I've never really been into politics like my family is. But ever since the coronavirus lockdowns, mass debates, etc., and the upcoming election, I decided I should get educated on what's going on in our country. 
My brother passed the buck. Yeah, I love it. Thank you, Ashley. I love when people pass the bucks. My favorite thing. My brother passed the buck to my twin sister a while back. And when I asked my sister what podcast I should start listening to, she, of course, then passed the buck to me. Funny thing is, my family's nickname for my sister has been Buck ever since we were little kids. And I now catch myself having to specify which Buck I'm talking about. That is funny. I look forward to listening to you every day. Appreciate your entertaining conversations with producer Mark and LOL almost every time you impersonate someone. Thanks so much for all you've taught me and continue to teach me and for such a great podcast. Well, Ashley, thank you for a really nice and very appreciated uh, message to us about the show. It really means a lot. Mark and I work very hard on this show, and that you like it so much is uh, makes us happy. It even makes, you can't see him, but it even makes producer Mark smile. It even makes him smile. He won't, he won't admit it, though. Well, I've never smiled before. What are you talking about? I'm just saying. It makes producer Mark smile. Because you're a little grumpy sometimes, okay? This is what's going on. You're a little grumpy sometimes. I'm a little grumpy sometimes. I mean, I'm a little grumpy a lot of the time. Exactly. Rich, the only chance this horrific, in so many ways, Democrat team duo of Biden and Harris can win is if Republicans, independents, and Democrats choose to cast their votes by mail-in ballot versus voting in person. We, the president's, we slash the president's team, need to start encouraging American citizens that if they can go to a store or restaurant and get gas for their vehicle, they can vote in person. This message needs to be pounded home. Rich, I've been saying all along, I think that voting in person is safe. I think that it's completely the way that this should go and that the Democrats' objections to this, I, I don't find their objections to be in good faith. I don't think they're worried about people getting COVID. I think they want to change the way that we vote because they figure that it will benefit them. And as I've said to you, I think this is a, not as good as my Kamala Harris prediction, which came true, as we all know. I've been predicting it for a while. I'm just going to say. I, I think that if we see, even if it's only in blue states that allow it, but large-scale mail-in balloting and then a Trump victory, the Democrats, the same Democrats who have been complaining about how we need universal mail-in balloting, will turn around in mid-November of 2020 and say, it was unfair, there was mail-in balloting. Had Elizabeth Ward's got a shop like, oh, oh gosh, oh gee, Willikers. You know, sure enough. I, I told him, I told my daddy always said, you know, you got, you got two frogs in a barn and a porcupine up on the roof and you can't mix them together and make gumbo. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So I don't know what that has to do with mail-in balloting, but I, I think Elizabeth Warren. Can I just break this down? It. You wanted to take a porcupine and a frog and make gumbo? No, she's she's explaining that you can't do that. Oh, you can't. Why would anybody think that they could? It's an important safety tip, producer Mark. Porcupine oh. and frog are prevalent in some parts of the country. Those don't think, seem like two things I would eat, though. Would anybody? Well, clearly, let's not be silly. You dequill the porcupine before. Isn't you Isn't this it. how the coronavirus started? <laughs> That's true, actually. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, more roll call here uh, from. Uh, make sure you go to BuckSexton.com today. We've got cool stuff getting posted there. Brian writes, Buck and Mark. Thanks for commentary on how Cuomo should resign in disgrace and possibly be imprisoned for what he did to elders in nursing homes. I live in Pennsylvania these days, and Governor Wolf is not much better with similar actions in nursing homes. 
He is not running for reflection, so is tyrannical in his liberal policy. Or sorry, running for re-election, <laughs> so is tyrannical in his liberal policies. My kids are five day a week virtual in PA now, and masks are necessary when outside your house. Eighty percent of us all agree how the loss of liberties is illegal. We need to all storm our state's house in a peaceful protest. P.S. De Blasio is the worst. I'm trying to get resigned Kaiser Wilhelm trending with no luck on Twitter. Yeah, no one knows that de Blasio's name was, was Warren Wilhelm, really. I, I always think that's so fascinating. That Warren Wilhelm, yeah, guten Tag. De Blasio wants you to go very quickly into the quarantine. Yeah. Or else he'll tell you you're very naughty. De Blasio says you're being... Okay, that's enough. So, um, yeah, I, look, I'm hoping that we're going to find a way through this quarantine uh, lockdown madness soon because we're, we're destroying our as i've been saying all along we're destroying our society this isn't worth it now there's even requirements for some employees uh, some state employees are being told to wear masks during zoom calls as a show of solidarity with mask wearing so now, now th- this is explicitly it's like mask signaling instead of virtue signaling this is explicitly political about the optics not about the virus in some cases at all but anyway, pass the buck, please. Do me that favor. Tomorrow we'll do a bit of a freestyle Thursday because I'm out Friday. And until then, you've got your orders, team. Shields high.